Welcome to the Superintendent's Hangout, where we discuss topics in education, charter schools, life in general, and not necessarily in that order. I'm your host, Dr. Sharetta. Come on in and hang out. This episode is brought to you by McGriff Insurance Services and Senior Vice President Mike Lutoski. For over a century, McGriff has focused on building long-term relationships to deliver innovative insurance solutions. The McGriff name dates back to 1886 and the founding of McGriff, Sables, and Williams. Today, McGriff is part of Truist Insurance Holdings, Inc., one of the top 10 largest insurance brokers in the world. McGriff provides highly consultative risk management and insurance solutions for businesses of all sizes, as well as for personal insurance needs. Coverages available include commercial property and casualty, small business, employee benefits, management liability, personal lines, and much more. Mike Lutoski's expertise is wide-ranging and includes transitioning employers from fully insured to partially self-funded medical, dental, and vision programs, HRA wrap programs, reference-based pricing, healthcare pricing transparency, pharmacy consulting, wellness programs, marketing implementation and ongoing management of fully insured benefit plans, and much more. Mike can be reached on his cell phone at 619-925-1731. All proceeds from this sponsorship support the Eric C. Mitchell Scholarship Fund at Albert Einstein Academies. The scholarship benefits graduates who exemplify the outstanding human qualities that define Mr. Mitchell's legacy. In this episode, I sat down for a wide-ranging conversation with Tommy Gomes. Tommy is a fourth-generation San Diegan, retired commercial fisherman, business owner, and star of The Fishmonger, which is the number one rated show on the outdoor channel. I'll put links in the show notes for how to access and view this informative and entertaining show. I'm quoting from a recent profile in San Diego Magazine. In each episode of The Fishmonger, Tommy serves as the larger-than-life docent into American fishing life. He visits with fishing families, shows what it's like trying to navigate the modern U.S. fishing industry. He captures the heart of a once-mighty culture that's being pushed to the brink, if not actively being lost. He both acts as a conduit for their stories and shares his own hard-won perspectives gained from being part of a family who's fished out of San Diego for over 120 years. Tommy and I don't just talk about fishing. We talk about climate change. We talk about reflections on youth from 40, 50 years ago compared to the realities of growing up today, life lessons, incarceration, getting sober, education, and much, much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Superintendent's Hangout. It was an absolute joy to sit down with Tommy and to hear about his life. Welcome, Tommy. Thanks for spending some time here on the Hangout. Um, it's great to have you. Thanks. Thanks for having me, man. I'm, I'm excited. This is going to be a this is a different type of podcast for me. This is going to be pretty cool. We're gonna we're gonna get down and deep into some subjects, and uh, you know, hopefully, some people listen to what. What I've uh, been through and and the road that I've traveled. Yeah, that's that that's the plan. And again, it's a chance to just have a chat and see where this thing leads us. I was wondering if you could start out by sharing your origin story, uh, where you come from, what your journey has been, um, and you know what brings you to this present moment, what you're doing now, and just kind of give us that that chat there. Jeez, it's. <laughs> 
That's a heck of a question <laughs> right out of the gate. You can take any part of that. Um, you know, born and raised here in San Diego. Um, my, I, uh, I grew up, believe it or not, I grew up down in Del Sol, uh, in South San Diego, east of Imperial Beach in the 60s and into the 70s. Uh, wasn't a whole lot down there, like 805 wasn't built, or Highway 119 or 117 wasn't built. It was Del Sol and Big Canyons, San Ysidro, and the border. That's what was there. And so we grew up down in there, and it was a very diverse neighborhood. Um, it was middle class at that time, um, with some lower class areas in and around the, the neighborhood. But it was a working class neighborhood and very diverse as far as um, mixed cultures. So it was it was very cool. I mean, I went to uh, Los Altos Elementary School. We were one, one of the first schools in the San Diego School District to do year-round school. Hmm. There's nine weeks on, three weeks off. Uh, went to Montgomery Junior High and went to Montgomery High for a while, and um, which was, again, a very diverse school. Um, you, had your, your, you had your blacks, you had your whites, you had your Filipinos, you had your Mexicans. Um, you know, I'm old school. I'm not going to sit here and say African-Americans. I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, of Mexican descent. I mean, we didn't have that issue. Uh, I know that it was around, and I know that it was alive in in some parts of the United States. But um, here in San Diego, it was a different different time and a different way to grow up. We didn't really have a lot of uh, racial disparities, and I'm not saying that being a white guy. I'm saying that because I was a minority in that neighborhood, and it was just different times back then, man. It was cool. So you uh, you went to Montgomery Middle, then. You said Montgomery High, and then... Yeah, for a while, went to Montgomery mm -hmm. High. Then my family moved back to Point Loma. Um, we had to move down to Del Sol because my father w went through um, financial times and lost everything, and we bought a house down in Del Sol. And then halfway through, uh, I finished the 11th grade, and then we moved to Point Loma, and that didn't work for me. Um it was definitely very, very different, right? Very different, um, extremely different. And I, at that time, before I moved to uh, Point Loma, during the summertime, I was working on fishing boats as a kid, um, working on the sport boats and, and on some of the tuna boats that my family, my uncles and, and so on had owned. And we'd be gone for the whole summer. The whole summer I'd be gone. And so when... I went to Point Loma. I just didn't fit in, and I got on a tuna boat, and I and I boogied, man. I was gone. I didn't look back, and uh, started traveling around the world on fishing boats, and you know, working hard and becoming a man out at sea, and you know, living that dream. So your your dad, I I can imagine. It sounds like you lived the kind of boom and bust life of uh of uh in the in fishing, right? I mean, if if your dad experienced financial difficulties, that that was related to the ebb and flow of the local tuna industry, or yeah, you know, it's either feast or famine. And then back then, you know, vessels were we had the big porpoise protest. You know, they thought that we were killing um, porpoise 
wide open to catch tuna, which was not true. I mean, yes, there were incidental kills in the net, but what they didn't talk about was us jumping in the nets uh, with sharks and tuna to save dolphins. And you didn't hear anything about the guys that would get bit or injured, um, things like that. And so there was economic times with the commercial tuna fishing industry because about that time was the 200-mile limit and, you know, Fish have tails. They're pelagic fish, and we would travel wherever the schools of fish were, and that sometimes that brought us within 200 miles of territorial water inside the line, what we call, and we would be seized. And so, like, the boat would get seized by a foreign country, and we'd be basically um, quarantined to the boat for two or three months, and so there was no money coming in. And then they would, that foreign country would take the fish off of your boat. So if you got caught and you had, let's say, five, 800 to 1,000 tons of fish, there goes all your money. And then what happens is you actually owe the boat money mm. because you owe for the expenses, you owe for the food and the fuel. And so it was very uh, trying times at times. And then again, there were the times where it was just bust, yes, wide open. You know, okay, you made a 15-day trip and you made, you know, 30 grand in 15 days. Super cool. You know, and you did that two or three times back to back and then you end up making a 120-day trip, you know, three and a half months long. And, you know, you still made good money, but not like you did when you did a 15 or 20-day trip. So you're a high school kid and you're in Point Loma, different environment, although long fishing history. Yeah. uh, and, And tradition in that area of San Diego and I'd imagine Point Loma's changed a lot in in the intervening decades as well uh, in some ways right? It has you know my father was born in Point Loma in Tunaville um, on Fenlon Street my brother my, not my brothers but my uncles and my aunts they were all born right there on Fenlon Street as well the family house is still there although it's not in the family anymore um, it was sold when my grandfather passed. And the neighborhood's changing, you know, as the uh, as the old generation passes on or decides to sell and go back to the old country, um, the houses are being leveled, the condos are going up. It's the same thing that we, we're seeing in Little Italy and other parts of our, of our fair city, you know, oceanfront property and things like that are just uh, extremely valuable. So that's primarily predominantly Portuguese, correct? In Point Loma. In Point yeah. Loma. Yeah. So how did how did the high school experience there jibe with your desire to just get out on a boat and go did, did was there support for that or did it was it completely incongruous and at odds with with your you know what the high school high school expectations were because I'd imagine there was some push, like you got to go through school, go to college, take another path. But you're like already trying to head out to sea. How did that? How did you resolve that? I just went fishing. I just, <laughs> I just didn't dig the. I wasn't into the whole jiving of what was going on mm-hmm. at Point Loma. You know, I grew up in a certain part of town, and then I was literally thrust into a whole different environment mm-hmm. um, and mindset. You know. I mean, we were down in, in Del Sol, you know, we were working on cars and painting cars. And in Point Loma, kids were pulling up in new Corvettes. It was just a different lifestyle. And so I ended up just going fishing and, and not looking back. Yeah. Um, you know, education is important. 
um, as you get older in life, you realize that um, you have other things that you're educated about, but academically, I'm lacking. Do you think there's something that schools can do? Um, you know, there's been this big push for career technical education now in schools. It's kind of made a resurgence, right? They, in the 50s and 60s, there was this concept of the the, the school, the shop, right? The yeah. auto shop. But yeah. it's come full circle, but certainly overlaid with a lot of high-tech skills. Is there a place in our K-12 education for preparing kids for entrepreneurial activities or going into something that's not a traditional college? Yeah, you, you know, I've invented a product and and have my hands in other multiple businesses. I don't, I got my GED when, I mean, it's not, um, it's not super secret. You know, I am an ex-con. I did do 10 years. I got a GED while I was in prison. Um, my math skills are just atrocious. My punctuation and spelling is just, you know, uh, brutal. And, you know, as far as a trade goes, I don't really have a trade. I'm a fishmonger. I can cut fish, and I can tell you about all the aspects of it. I am an expert witness for the federal government in all things seafood matters. How do, what is that? Talk a little bit about that. That's I didn't even know, I know about expert witnesses, but I, am, I never knew there was one in that category. I am an expert witness in matters of seafood for the federal government. Yes. So when they're trying to prove that there's poaching or false I, claims about products, or? I don't know anything about the case okay. at that time because okay. I'm outside the courtroom. Okay. They bring me in. They ask me questions about the product, the seafood, and I leave. I don't know anything about the case until like maybe well after. So sentencing. is this wild or or farmed salmon? Yes or no? Yeah, that kind of thing. That kind of thing <laughs> is this. You know, um, uh, seafood is a lot of smoke and mirrors. But back back to the question at hand, I think it's it's important that we have um, trades. Um, we need our welders. We need pipe fitters. We need auto mechanics, whether it's small engines or big engines. Um, we need that stuff. We need construction workers. We need uh, draftsmen. We need people that can build. And then we need the tech side of it, too. Um, we need people that are computer programmers, although more and more of that is going offshore and being, uh, you know, we're hiring offshore and going into foreign countries and setting up businesses there, while our infrastructure here seems to be, um, it's like the 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 kid with his finger in the dike, you know, it's leaking here and leaking there because we just don't have the welders. We don't have um, the power line guys. And these are six figure jobs. And these are jobs that have great retirement and things like that. And we don't have, you know, when I was growing up, you know, um, I missed Vietnam. I shouldn't say I missed it, but I wasn't young enough to be drafted or I wasn't old enough to be drafted. Right. And by that time, I was already out fishing. But the military, you know, there's there's schooling that you can get through that as well. And I look at some guys that did their 20 in the military and got out with their retirement and then went and got a civil service job for another 20. And they're not that old, and they've got two pensions coming in, and their kids went to school, and, you know, it's not a bad way to go. And so we just have to rethink uh, about, what we want to do uh, with our lives, you know, and 
own what there's nothing wrong with being a plumber and owning your own plumbing business and there's nothing wrong with being a general contractor or an auto body guy um a real auto body guy not just a guy that replaces fiber or plastic panels on these new cars you know um that it's an art and it's a dying art and pipe fitting and welding and all that stuff so yeah man it's out there so what most people don't really know what a fishmonger is. They, 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 obviously they know it has something to do with fish. Um, if they haven't watched your show, which we're going to get to in a, in a little bit, and mo- most people, more and more people have watched it now, but what does a fishmonger do? We, uh, we're, we're an individual that peddles fish. So you have a cheesemonger, you have a fishmonger, you have a butcher. And back in the days, um, Ozzy and Harriet, Leave It to Beaver, Andy Beaver, Andy Griffin Show. They, they, you know, they had Aunt B was going to see Sam the Butcher. Remember Sam the Butcher yep. on the show? You know, I think they had a little thing going those two. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you had butchers and you had bakers and you you went around town. You just didn't go to one store and buy everything. You, you know, going shopping was you went to each individual place and you built these long lasting relationships with those individuals. Nowadays, you go to the store and you throw everything in your in your basket. You don't even know the country of origin of what what you're buying. And then you go to a self checkout. There's no interaction. There's no human interaction there. You're there. So when people come to see a fishmonger and there's only a few of us in San Diego, there's a lot of guys that sell fish, right? But there's only a few fishmongers in San Diego. And we build these relationships to where um, we've seen young couples get married. And now they've got kids and they're six, seven years old and they're coming into the shop too, you know. Oh, we're going to go see Uncle Tommy at the fish market. And, you know, when they tell stories about, you remember when you gave me that fish head and told me to put it under my pillow and in a week the fish fairy would come and... (laughs) Leave me a hundred dollars, <laughs> and their mom would jump in. Yeah, I remember that. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Still trying funny. to get the smell out of the house. Yeah, it was hilarious. We used to do that stuff. But a fishmonger is—that's what it is. We educate you on seafood, and what's healthy to eat, and what's something that you probably don't want to eat, and and why? Why don't I want to eat this? Well, you know, that's a whole another chapter. In in watching your show, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the challenges that California fishermen face, commercial Oof. fishermen face. And, oh, um, and yeah. I know you've lived, you've lived, uh, multiple decades of that, of that journey. Could you talk to us about how you've seen the commercial, f- uh, fishing industry change over your lifetime and, yeah. and where you think we're headed? More rules, more regulations, less fishermen. We're a dying breed. We're aging out. We have guys that are in their late seventies that are still commercial fishing, That'll work any 19-year-old under the under the table. I mean, these are big, strong, burly guys that all they want to do is work. California just closed our salmon season. There's no salmon fishing in the state of California for commercial fishermen or recreational fishermen. I have to buy fish in Washington and Oregon and bring it down here by truck. I can't buy Santa Barbara or north of Santa Barbara, San Francisco, Morro Bay. I can't buy that salmon from my buddies because they can't fish they shut it down and california it's very clear and this is just my opinion it's not anything that um has been said at a at a union hall or a meeting hall rather um 
California doesn't want commercial fishermen. But what they do want is that waterfront property. They don't want a bunch of fishermen tying up their stinky old boats and stuff like that. Well, those stinky old boats are, we feed the world. Think about that. We feed the world. And what I mean by that is a lot of our fish that's caught here in California is sent to China for processing and sent back. That's a lot of jobs. And think about this. Even before that fish is caught and harvested, that fish has created jobs in the state of California's economy before it's even harvested. We got to buy food. We got to buy fuel. We're paying dock fees. We have forklift drivers. We have all this stuff going on to put provisions on the vessel in order for us to go fishing to bring it back. And then that fish, once it's harvested, the clock is ticking. And it's ticking, and it's ticking, and it's ticking. And that fish, when it's offloaded, is right back into the economy. We are creating jobs. We are creating forklift drivers, processors, packers, truck drivers, the guys who make the cardboard boxes. All of that stuff factors into this one fish, this one fish. doesn't matter the size. One fish has created all these jobs, hundreds of jobs. And then that job... It, that fish and that job goes all the way to the dishwasher at a restaurant and it doesn't stop there because it goes all the way to the waste management people who take the garbage to the landfill and then you got another bulldoze driver out there bulldozing it down. That one fish created all those jobs. Yeah, we don't want that. We want to put our commercial fishermen out of business. Where are we going to get our food if we don't have commercial fishermen? Where are we going to get our beef and our chickens and our pigs? You know, it's something to think about. So country of origin. That's big. So That's big, man. So talk to us about that. Big. You remember <laughs> you remember growing up and we had the Dole Pineapple Dole Company yeah, cocktail co sauce. That's right, yeah. The fruit cocktail. Fruit cocktail, delicious. And if it had two... Cherry halves in it, you were like, yeah, that was like, but yeah. there was always only one, yeah. and sometimes there was none. And if there was none, you got you just got ripped off. You that, got that was, straight punk. That was better than a Cracker Jack box with two two prizes. In yes, it, yeah, it yeah, was. Yeah. And where did that come from? At that time, it came from Hawaii, right? It came from Hawaii. Guess where it comes from now? Take a wild guess. Got a big red flag. It's got to be China. Got to be China. So when you go shopping, look at the label, know the country of origin, do just a little bit of research and go, wow, man, do I really want to eat this that's coming out of Sri Lanka? Why do I want to eat that? So fish that's caught here, processed in China. And then brought back. Brought back. Frozen. Frozen. Does it have to reflect that on the label? It, it reflects processed in China. And that's simply uh, an economic decision. It is. And it's not a good one because you're putting our health at jeopardy. And we've, we're a nation. We're fat. We're lethargic. We're diabetic. We have autism going through the roof. We have Down syndrome going through the roof. And I believe, and I'm not a doctor or anything like that, but we've got so many chemicals and preservatives in our food these days that I think it's got something to do with it. And maybe the hippies were right, man. Maybe they were right. I mean, we finally legalized marijuana. Maybe we had to look about this food thing, too, because um, 
food matters and f- to to live healthy you need to eat healthy and if you look at if you take the country of origin when it comes to seafood if a foreign flagged boat will use whether we'll use china or russia or, or whoever and goes into say they go into ecuador and they offload there that becomes a country of origin ecuador Okay, so now you have this giant fleet of high seas vessels with real, true, honest to goodness. People are not going to believe this, so please do your homework, do your research. We have slave labor on these vessels at sea. Some, a lot, are pirated right out of ports, thrown on boats, and made to work in conditions that are just gnarly. And... We're buying that fish, and we're feeding it to our people, and we're supporting that industry, and it's just not good. If you went to, and it, it's called, it's I'm going to get all excited here because it's called IUU fish. It's illegal, unreported, unregulated seafood. It's a real thing, and it's super cheap. And on my show, I say good seafood's not cheap and cheap seafood's not good. You say that every episode, just about, It's just not good, you know? And so when it comes to food, we need to really do a little bit of homework and figure out the country of origin and where it came from. Now, look, I, I get it, man. Especially here in San Diego, um, we have, we have food deserts. Yeah. National City yeah. is a food desert. Who's down there? Big Ben? There's nobody down there. Yeah. And so you have, you know, the family values here in America have kind of broken. You have a mom with, you know, 2.5 kids working two jobs and going to night school to better herself, for give a better life for her kids. She's single trying to make ends meet. She doesn't have time to cook because she has to study. Um, and she's tired from working two jobs and the kids and all that. So she, what does she do? She goes through drive through We go through fish one of, fillet. We, yeah, you get a fish fillet, yeah. which is good fish, though. McDonald's, Mickey D's fish sandwich is an Alaskan cod. It's a good fish. I'm cracking up right now that you would even go there. <laughs> but it, it is a good fish. It's processed here and all of that. Um, but our food's changed, man. So the wild-caught versus farmed uh, decision actually sounds like it's not as simple as it's made to made out to be because if wild-caught means wild-caught but processed uh, uh, 5,000 miles away and then brought back compared to farmed, could be farmed in fairly, that you show this on one of your episodes too, where, where you, you talk about uh, tilapia farms that are... Uh, actually fairly clean and uh the the fish is is healthy talk yeah. talk to us about that it's farmed f- <laughs> you had to go there i did it's farmed fish is here to stay it's not going anywhere okay um this is not charlton heston in soylent green this isn't um there's a lot of good farmed fish out there there's a lot of not so good farmed fish out there and there's a lot of terrible farmed fish out there you have to do your homework why would you eat a fish 
that's fed beef, chicken, or pork byproducts using a pig's blood as a binding agent in its feed if, for health or religious reasons, you don't eat beef, chicken, or pork? Shouldn't you be able to know what you're ingesting into your body, my body, my choice, right? Yet we're not. And farmed fish isn't going anywhere. Wild seafood, here's one for you. Wild seafood is the only protein that we don't manufacture. We manufacture our beef, our chicken, our pork, our tofu, our soybeans for tofu. We manufacture all that Monsanto, right? And wild seafood is the only thing that we don't manufacture. We lay it on the line to go get it. We don't know if we're coming back. We don't know if we're coming back injured or we're coming back in a body bag frozen in a fish hole. Um, so that's something to think about. And your American fishermen are the most regulated fishermen on the planet. On the planet, we're the most regulated fishermen out there. And yet, some ungodly amount of 80 to 90% of the seafood that we consume in this country is imported. Are there countries that do it the right way? So there if are. it's imported from, I don't know, I'm gonna, I don't know where, you fill in the blank, that's not China or Russia? There are, there are countries that do it the right way. And... I mean, don't get me wrong. We got we got guys here in the states that aren't doing it the right way, but for the majority, the vast majority, the large number of fishermen are doing it the right way. Nobody wants to kill the last of anything, and nobody certainly wants to get uh, busted or intercepted by any federal or state wildlife law enforcement people because you know you can lose your livelihood. You can always live on your boat but you can never fish off the front porch of your house and make a living. Your boat is all you have. Then, you know, you do the right thing and you, and you'll produce. If, if you're a knucklehead and you're not doing the right thing and you're doing illegal activity with your boat, you're going to get popped, especially nowadays. They're tracking every single boat, every boat, every American boat that's commercial fishing from a certain size limit up has a tracking device like gps or, or satellite it's something. a satellite yeah. tracker and you don't turn it off because you're going to get in trouble it'd be like driving around with a chp officer in your car a highway patrol officer in your car yeah no thank you yeah no man it, it's not cool so you just do the right thing you know go fishing so 18, 19 years old, you go out on boats. You said you, it, it turned you into a man. You've been all over the world. Yeah. Um, what bring, What took you from that point to being here in San Diego and really supporting the local fishermen? If you can talk to us about the downtown San Diego, the pier, and uh, the fishermen coming in, I think it's Saturday mornings, and, yeah. and really fresh off the boat. Uh, you know, still still flopping around almost. Talk talk to us about about that and how you got into supporting your your fellow fishermen. Well, after I got clean and sober, which is a whole another segment, um, that was brutal. Um, there was there. I mean, I, I I literally had an awakening, man. That okay, 
I'm going to be the voice, my own voice, of commercial fishermen for the United States. And here in San Diego, we have what's called Dockside Market. Um, Pacific to Plate was passed, and the, it allows the fishermen to sell direct to the public off of the docks. And down at Tuna Harbor or G Street, uh, where we used to tie up tuna boats, San Diego, the once great tuna capital of the world. I mean, we literally fed 90% of the world. Uh, we tied up down there, and now the local fishermen can come in on Saturdays and sell their catch to the general public down there. And during the pandemic, um, people were hurting, man. People weren't working. Fishermen were hurting. The wholesalers stopped buying because the restaurants stopped buying. Right. You couldn't truck the fish anywhere, and fishermen were still going fishing because they had to make a living. And so we ended up selling directly off of the boats onto the docks. And we would have hundreds and hundreds of people lined up waiting for us to open. And we'd had to let them in, you know, because you had to follow the rules set forth by the pandemic, um, you know, 20, 30 people at a time. And then as somebody left, you'd let another one in. Um, and it was great. You know, the commercial fishermen got to, to uh, they got paid better. They made more money. Um, and people got a better deal and fresher fish, and they knew their source. They asked questions. They could meet the fishermen and know where your food came from. So it was very cool, man, how that whole thing evolved, and it's still going on today. I'd imagine there's an education process in that too. I mean, in watching your show, you talk about different species that are perhaps not the 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 common ones that everyone's talking about, right? And, yeah. Uh, and, and so how, I mean... Do buyers show up uh, knowing what they want, or do do or the fishermen have to go? Hey, there's this, and this is how you prepare it, and how does that work? So for me, I buy the whole load when the boats come in to my shop. I buy the whole load. So whatever they got, you you buy. I buy it all. Okay. I, when I when that boat leaves, I want them hosing the boat down and getting ready to go home. I don't want them to have to worry about a bunch of fish that right. I didn't want. So we educate people because everybody wants, let's be real, okay? Everybody wants salmon, yep. swordfish, tuna. It's something called sea bass. You put sea bass in front of anything, people buy it. Right. And shrimp. Well, what about all the rest of the fish that's out there that are delicious? And so you educate people on that. And each ethnic group enjoys their own type of fish. The Asians love the little redfish. They love rock cod. They just love them. And there's... You rock, know, rock cod are delicious. Dozens and dozens of different species of rock mm. fish. And, you know, there's a couple dozen of red ones, but they love the red ones. Mm. Um, you know, certain groups don't want the red ones. You know, they want the mackerel and sardines and, you know, this and that. And so it's all out there. You just got to educate people because here... For for me, I seen I have seen people shift from they want that four ounce piece of fish, bloodline out, skin off, no bones, and they don't want it to taste like fish. Like in the commercial. Yeah. Perfect. Go get yeah. a piece of chicken. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas now we do these dinner events around the city where at a four top table I put a three pound fish whole, head, eyes and all sitting on a giant bed of rice and a salad, family style, 
and I tell these folks, I go, look, you're all adults now. You get to play with your food, and no one's going to yell at you. I want you to get in there and eat that thing like a piece of chicken. And, you know, you break it off, you put it on their plate, and they get in there, and they're eating it, and they're like, oh, my God, this is the best tasting fish ever. Yeah, because it's a whole fish. You're eating all these different parts. You're cooking it with the bone in. That bone is flavor. You know, you, you take a T-bone steak. A T-bone steak is better than a New York strip. Same cut. One's got a bone in it, one doesn't. Right. But that bone is what makes it better, you know, that flavor profile. So it's the same thing with fish. Oh, but I don't like bones. It's not. It's nature's toothpick. Just use it. Spit it out. You're an adult. It's okay. No one's going to slap your wrist. Have fun. So it, you've, it sounds like you've seen a shift in San Diego in terms of appreciation for eating fish differently. Um Certain among certainly among some seg- segment of the population. Yeah, uh, you you also travel around a lot now for your show, which we'll get to in a minute. Do you see this same level of appreciation around the country, or I do. Um, I see people starting to eat the more undesirable species. You know, right now we have this huge push that's just popped its nose up on the surface of the tinned fish. You know, tinned sardines and tinned anchovies and mussels and clams and all that. And this is not your grandfather's or your pappy's sardines that he would eat on the porch, you know. These things are really good. They're coming from Europe and Spain and Portugal and all over the place, and they're delicious. And I see people now ordering... Um, I, I Let me back up. I love hearing at a restaurant, what's the country of origin of the fish? You mean from a... A from a different asked, table. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. What kind of fish is that? What's the country of origin? Is it a local fish? I love hearing that because it's like, oh, people are starting to pay attention. You know, why is it that we are serving so much Brazino, which is now called Mediterranean sea bass? Why are we serving so much of that being flown in from around the world from farms when we have beautiful rockfish right here in San Diego that our local fishermen are bringing in, fresh, daily, every day, that's never seen the back of a truck, let alone an airplane. Why are we not serving this? Because of price point. They'd rather buy a cheap imported fish than pay an American fisherman the true real value of the catch that they bring in. And it's ridiculous because it's just better, man. So how does someone on a limited income get to where they can enjoy healthy, healthy fish in a sustainable way. Like here in San Diego, here in San Diego. Yeah. I mean, let's start with San Diego. Go down to the boats. Yeah. You go down to the boats, Driscoll's wharf, tuna, Driscoll's wharf or tuna, tuna side, dockside market. You go down there and you talk to a couple of guys like like Pete Grillo from Atlantic Pacific Tuna or David Hayworth from Hayworth Fishing. And you walk down there and, and you go, hey, man, I'm on a limited budget. I got three kids, blah, blah, blah. I got a 20 spot. What what can I get? They'll load you up. They're not. We did it during the pandemic. Right. People were coming down that were hurting. Yeah. America was hurting. We were feeding people free fish. Um, it's out there. Yeah. There's some really great, great fish that's not going to break the bank. We just did a a fish taco kit at Tunaville Market and Groceries yesterday and today. Um, 
We had two pounds of ground fish, seasoned, marinated, ready to go, 40 tortilla shells, a bag of cabbage, a bag of a carton of salsa, a carton of white sauce, and a small carton of the the Mexican white cheese, the skim milk cheese, yeah, yeah. cochilla, Co- cotija, yeah, Co- that, whatever, yeah, yeah cotija, yeah. yeah, and that was twenty bucks. Oh, geez, people were calling. Hey, do you still have them? Yeah, come on down, come on down, come on down. So it's out there. You just got to ask. But then again, there's also you know, the forty, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty dollar a pound stuff too. But there's other stuff that's readily available that's a lot less expensive and is good. Yeah, it was it was interesting during the pandemic. We started to right away distribute food boxes and hygiene hygiene kits. Yeah, I mean, within a week of things getting shut down, and we had I think we've given out well over a hundred thousand meals. Yeah, um, th- through the first kind of year and a half of the pandemic, and it's not even the profile of uh, individuals who you think would come and get food. I mean, we saw luxury cars showing up. Yeah, and man. People, people's margin between being okay and being not okay is pretty thin. Yeah. Just in general in this country and in this city that's so expensive. And we we were unsure of what was going that's on, right. how long it was going to be, yeah. who's telling the truth, what's going on. Okay, I can't, you know, am I going to be able to get money? Oh, my God. How much can I use this credit card? Even yeah. though you got great credit, how much can you run it up? Are you going to be able to afford to make the payments afterwards? Yeah. And now all that stuff is coming due, man. All those loans and everything are coming due from the pandemic. We're still not out of it yet, you know, economically. Yeah. Um, so talk to us about about uh, Tunaville and 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 just the whole the whole market piece. And I mistakenly called it a restaurant. So what's so Tunaville Market and Grocery was a, a dream and a concept that I had with Mitch Conniff, who owns Mitch's Seafood in Point Loma, right on the water there. Um, and Mitch buys more, Mitch's Seafood buys more local seafood than any restaurant in San Diego. And it's just a very small place. And we always talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. And one day after 18 and a half years, I lost my job. And... Uh, didn't have, didn't have a job, man, and I didn't know. And Mitch was like, "Hey, let's let's open up this market." I found a couple spots, and we went and looked at them. And then all of a sudden, um, uh, Tom Driscoll got a hold of us and said, "Hey, I got this spot down here, right on the water." And we went down and looked at it, and it's down the sidewalk from Mitch's. We're like, "This is perfect," you know. It's port property. The port owns it. We'll be working with the port. Uh, it's got parking, and so we started in, and then wham, bam, hit the pandemic hit, you know, and um, it was a weird transition for me because uh, I was I was taking care of my mother. She had uh, dementia and was very frail and on her way to check out, and I took care of my mother, and then when I lost my job, after 18 years, the pandemic hit. So we had all this going on and the commercial fishermen, we started selling off the docks. And so I was down at the docks work, literally working for food, literally working for seafood because, you know, you still have to eat. And we were peddling fish right off of the boats down there and helping everybody out. Um, 
and then uh, we, you know, Mitch and I got together and we we got some investors, some other commercial fishermen invested in with us, and we built this shop. And so Tunaville Market and Grocery was built on the literally on the blood, sweat, and tears of of commercial fishermen, and we've been able to take that and educate people on good quality fish because we buy direct from the fishermen and we pay more than anybody. We pay our fishermen a living wage. We make less of a margin from the sales side, but we have a variety of commercial fishermen that are true to us because we pay more. Whereas I can get the same fish south of here for a buck seventy-five, dollar eighty-five, two bucks a pound coming out of Mexico, but I'm paying my guys four fifty-five bucks a pound because there's a story, a history, and tradition that I know about, not just some fish coming off the back of a truck. Does it? Yeah, and you and you know the family history behind it too. Yeah, right? you know the you know multiple generations. And yeah, exactly. On your on your show, uh, I think it's in season one, but there's a a family it's mom dad two teenage boys the grandpa yeah and they're all involved uh in commercial fishing and coming here out of san diego yeah that's the that's the hawkins family you know um jody the jody h jody hawkins jody h is the boat and they fish albacore in the pacific northwest and they live here in san diego for generations and um they're doing it man you know, um, but it's getting harder and harder for your American fishermen, just like it is for your American farmers and your your ranchers and auto worker and the steel worker. It's just getting harder and harder to work and to provide a good, solid living for your family. So how did the show start? Uh, I know that, um, you know, you've you've been in private business. You've you invented some you invented at least one product, which oh, yeah. we haven't talked about, but I want to get back to that. Yeah. But the fishmonger, uh, fish, the fishmonger. Last time I checked, I think it was the number one outdoor. Sh- yeah, show. we're up there, man. Yeah, we just we're, we. I made the Mile High Club. I'm on United Airlines. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you can say that. Uh, yeah, well, we we just did. So, oh, so. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so a friend of mine, Scott Layseth, we used to do these consumer shows and cooking demos, and I would break down fish and cook it. And and he and I and and another friend of ours, Gary, who's no longer with us, you know, I miss him dearly, dearly, I miss him. Um, We would always talk about this. And then one day, um, Scott says, hey, let's do a sizzle reel. And I said, okay, I'll get a bunch of captains together in a round table, and we'll have this discussion. And and I picked guys that didn't like each other, and so it made for an interesting conversation. Spicy. <laughs> made for an interesting conversation, right? And um, Scott filmed it, and uh, the team, you know, we had a couple of guys come in and help us out with that, our our team. that They're some of the best guys on the planet. They really are cool. Um, Scott sent it in, and the network said, run with it. And Scott said, uh, called me up and said, hey, we got a show. And I'm like, what's that mean? <laughs> we got a show. I don't know what that means. I'm not in TV. I said, oh, no, man, we have to shoot eight episodes of The Fishmonger. And I'm like, cool, right? So we did. And 
all because of that sizzler reel. And so we branched out and then it was game on because we had to come up with like the first show. I think it was eight weeks. We had to get the first show out. So, okay, San Diego. And we filmed down here in San Diego and I got all my buddies down here. And then once they saw what was going on, they called buddies up North and then it just word traveled all the way up the Western, Western seaboard. And then, you know, it went down into the Gulf states and over to the East Coast, and people were commenting and trying to get us to do their tell their story. And so, basically, it really truly is about family and tradition and heritage and what it takes to get good quality seafood to your family's table, and some colorful characters along the way. Oh, it's super fun, man! Yeah. So, so how yeah. do you? So yeah, I guess. Did, is it scripted and, and conceptually no. or you're just there's, rolling? You're just there's rolling. no script. You're it's just... off the cuff. It's like and I and I mean, I'm messed up, man. I am not a hundred percent. I will never be a hundred I got flying squirrels and raccoons playing ping pong in my head twenty four seven. Okay. So for me Good thing I didn't give you an espresso before you came in here. Oh. <laughs> um so yeah, it's not scripted. It's not. And the the team, the crew that works that I'm allowed I'm gonna say it, the team that I'm allowed to work with is amazing. Um my editors or the not my they're not mine. They've they belong to everybody. Those guys are amazing. Directors are super cool. We have award winning directors. I mean, these guys have won awards and stuff. And so we travel around and we stay at Airbnbs. You know, we don't go to the fancy hotels where, you know, okay, see you tomorrow. No, man, we're cooking with each other and we're having a good time. And it's a family. Yeah. And they're, you know, the editors are setting up at the dining table with all their stuff and they're editing and they're like, hey, you guys, come here, look at this shot. And we'll go over and look at this shot. And it's like, oh, my God, how did you get that? And it's just happening, man. It's super cool. But it's a lot of, I mean, I don't see all the work that goes on behind the scenes right. of the editing and, and all of that. But when it comes out on the show and you see it, it's pretty cool, man, to see your, what you've done. So how do people uh, find the show and watch it? Um, we're, we're on the outdoor network. So it's like the outdoor channel, world fishing network, sportsman's channel, Amazon prime, United airlines. Um, yeah, you just sign up. Sign up. I think it's like five ninety nine a month for the outdoor outdoor yeah. TV, and you can watch the show. The new episode comes up in May, I think. Season three comes up in season three. Can you season believe season three? Season three. Wow. Yeah. Which is weird because uh, episode two, season one, we hammer the imports pretty good. Yeah. We had one shot, man. Had one shot to tell the story. Have you gotten blowback when the when the show went? I don't know if it's syndicated or when the show went global. Uh, episode two disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> that means someone contacted Jeff Bezos at no, Amazon. I think it was. I think it was. You know, a very smart move for whoever called it because you know sponsorship is a big deal yeah. and the network they own the show. Right. I mean, it's not a time-sponsored thing. We don't have to sell sponsorship. The network owns it. They they got it outright, so it's super cool. So do you 
get start, are you starting to get recognized um, uh, more and more as you travel and hang out places and yeah <laughs> yeah that's kind people, of an odd experience people right? people used to cross the street to get away from me and now <laughs> they shake come across the street to shake my hand and it's amazing what tv does right i was standing in line um some amazing things have happened uh the past five years just amazing in my life so i'm standing in line at the airport tsa i got a passport which i could never get could never get a passport. We'll get to okay, that. Okay, yeah, that's a... I'm standing... Along in, with the, the, the product that you invented, I want to also talk about passport. So I'm standing in line at TSA, um, and this guy looks at my passport, and he looks at me, and he goes, Hey, you're the fishmonger. And I go, yeah. Now, mind you, I'm in Chicago. There's a buttload of people behind me, right? And he's like, hey, can, can I get a picture? And I'm like, sure. And he turns around and calls to his buddies. Hey, I got the fishmonger. We love your show, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, bro, seriously, can I get through this line before this mob of people start mobbing me because I'm holding up the line? Oh, yeah, come on, we'll get a picture. So it was kind of cool, man. But um, And it still happens. You know, people come up and they go, hey, we saw your show, and thank you very much. And, and uh, they come into the shop. And people, San Diego is a great city, man. It's a great city. Uh, people save their pennies to come to our town. Yeah. They do. They yeah. save for a long time. Yeah. And when they come and find me at the store at Tunaville Market, oh, wow, you are here. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, we're from you know, Podunk, Iowa or wherever. We watch your show and we're out here because my son's graduating from the Marines and you know, I wanted to see if you were here. And so it's like, yeah, and we take pictures and everything. And hold on, man, I got something for you. And go in the back and break out a fishmonger hat. You know, here you go. And so it's it's pretty cool. Yeah. What I've appreciated, it doesn't have the the uh, the kind of the fake conflict uh, drama that some reality oh, no. shows have. And, oh, no. You know, I'm, and I'm not going to say the name of the show because that's not even important. But there are shows where... You'd think every time a boat goes out in the ocean, yeah. there's got to be a storm. Someone's yeah. got to almost go overboard. Yeah. There's got to be a fight. Someone's yeah. got to remove their own tooth with pliers yeah. because they're five days from shore. Yeah. And I'm like, it seems a little contrived. Yeah, you know, all we're trying to do is tell the story. That's it. We're just trying to tell the story. And, and it seems to be working. But then again, I am very grateful that I get to work with a talented team that I, that I do. And... Uh, they're pretty cool guys, man. They got a lot of talent. So you brought it up. So passport. Yeah, I um, I'm a, I was a uh, highly violent registered offender with the federal government. I'm an ex-con. I did ten years in prison, and um, it was uh, no chance to get a passport or even after the ten years. Even after, yeah. And I ran into a friend of mine who I knew from back in the day who was um, going to law school at the time. And I was cutting fish during the pandemic. And um, he saw me and he goes, hey, Tommy, how you doing? I turned around and I'm, I'm not even going to mention his name. <laughs> and, um, you know, we told him, how you doing? We, we started BSing. And I uh, said, hey, man, how's, how's, you know, how's your law business doing and everything he goes oh i'm still in law but i'm in a different position now and and um 
he hands me his business card, and he says, hey, if there's anything that I can do for you, let me know. And I says, well, as a matter of fact, there is, because um, I would like to get a passport and try and get my my uh, life back together. And he says, well, come down and come down and see me. And I said, well, I don't, I don't mean to be rude or anything, but the last time I was in that building, it didn't do me any good. And so, you know, but he said, no, come on down and we'll see what we can do. And, um, three and a half weeks later, man, I got a passport with TSA. TSA pre-approve or whatever. Yeah. TSA, TSA. pre-check to where, yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck in that line. I'm going this way. It's, one of those things man so it's another one of those weird blessings that i've had in my life and there's been multiple ones um you know that have come out of left field and uh yeah. kind of grab me and go hey you're over here the um there's a great san diego magazine profile of you um from uh, a couple years ago i think but um I think it's really touching and balanced and uh, some really cool photos in there. And you talk about your, your folks and you talk about your dad. Yeah. Um, uh, and you, you, you make reference to the challenges of parenting, you know, when, when you're in prison. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I have a 20 year old daughter and, um, and that's the most important, uh, my important will always be my most important job is to be a dad. Yeah. How do you, how did you handle that? And how did your daughter handle that? You know, I was very grateful and very lucky again, because if it wasn't, I, I did federal time and I got shipped around a lot because I didn't follow the rules because rules are made for people who can't follow directions. And I didn't want to follow either one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I had never been arrested before in the United States. Never. And I, found myself in prison um i mean if you're gonna go you might as well go big right and um my daughter i was very grateful that my mother would bring my kid to visit me no matter where i was mm -hmm. my dad would come when he was in from fishing um at that time my brothers were still alive so they would come and then i had friends that would pick up my daughter and bring her to me so that I could see my daughter. And there were some things that I found very disturbing in prison. Um, one is prison's not cool, man. It's not cool. You know, um, you miss a lot of things and you can't show that you're, you can't show that you miss anything. Cause then that, that'll be weak and you can't show weakness, which is just a bunch of malarkey. Because you miss birthdays and weddings and quinceaneras and you miss phone calls and you miss, you know, your neighbor and you miss your dog and you miss all of these things that makes you human. And you get thrown into this concrete, cold metal environment that doesn't allow humanity to be soft. And so it gets hard. It's not cool, man. It's not a status quo. Ooh, I went to prison. It's just, it's terrible. And people that think that it's cool that are on the outside have that never have never been in that have never been in, you're in for a rude awakening, man. Because the pain that you feel 
inside for missing your mom and your dad and your kids and your family and and all of that and the parties and Sunday barbecues and Sunday football and just everything in basic human life that you miss is going to eat away at you and, it, and you're going to push it down and push it down and push it down and you're going to get harder and harder and harder to where when you do get out and you get a chance back at that lifestyle, you're going to find out that you don't belong there anymore and you're going to mess up and you're going to go back in. And that's how the system is designed is for you to fail when you, so that your revolving door coming in and out, you're just a number each time and prisons, a lot of things, but one of them, it's not cool, man. It's just not. How did you stay out then? Um, well, while I was in, I did a, I, had a parenting program developed because in the female prisons, um, the females got to visit with their kids a whole lot different than the males did. Like more frequently and and more more in person. Sitting on their lap and watching movies and TVs and stuff like that, playing games and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I set up a parenting program to where if you did this uh, nine-week course with me, that you would be allowed special privileges with your kids in the visiting room, you would be able to go watch a Disney movie with your kids. You would be able, and here's these hardcore guys doing 20 years that are all yoked up, sitting down, playing Candyland, a board game right. with their kids, man. How cool is that? And that would give them a glimpse of, oh, yeah, man. This Some is, hope. This is what I'm missing. And so we got that to where it was mandated nationwide by Janet Reno. Yeah. Wow. So it was mandated. This parenting, I don't know if it's still going on today, but at that time it was. And then I also taught um, job placement in the commercial fishing industry where I had these videos sent in from my bo our boats, family boats, and we would talk about tuna fishing and, and how to get a job on a tuna boat and what to expect on fishing boats. And, you know, the, from the cooks to the engineers to the deck bosses to the, you know, galley hands to everything else. And guys would get out and they would... I would hear from them like two or three years later. Hey, man, I'm in Alaska working on this boat. And thank you. You know, yeah, it's hard work, but I'm making money and supporting my family. So it was cool. And um, so I was lucky enough that I got to see my daughter. And I would read to her. I would get her a book. And I would have a book. And I would read to her on the phone. Mm. You know, you get 12 minutes on the phone. And so I would read to her on the phone, which was cool because guys were looking like, you're reading to your kid on the phone. I'm going, yeah, man, she's got the book too. And we read it to each other. And they were like, what book? I need to get that book to my kid. Can I borrow your book? And so it started this whole thing, right? It made guys think about how are they going to act when they get out? What kind of father are they going to be? Let alone what kind of husband are they going to be? That's, that's, uh, yeah, that's touching. Yeah, it, yeah as, as a dad. Yeah, what yeah. kind of father are you going to be? What kind of husband are you going to be? What kind of son are you going to be, you know, to your mom? Because we always talk about mom, 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 mom. What about the dad, what about, man? What about your dad? Yeah. Dad's hurting, too. Yeah. I self-surrendered. My dad and my brother drove me to the Lompoc Penitentiary, the this, this maximum penitentiary in Lompoc, and I walked up there, and I rang the buzzard. And the guy from the gun tower on the 
PA system, little intercom thing, goes, can I help you? And I go, yes, sir, I think I'm supposed to turn myself in. And he laughed and said, huh, we don't get very many of you. Next thing I know, the, a guard comes out through the sally port and then through the secondary gate, and he says, say goodbye, to, say goodbye to your father and your brother. And I said, okay, guys, I guess this is it. Gave my dad a hug, high-fived my brother, and I walked in. They weren't expecting you? Was, no, they were they expecting They were expecting me. you. But when you're a self-surrender at a Supermax, you don't, they don't see a lot of those. You usually end up going to a lower level, you know, a, what they call a camp or a, a low-level FCI. But I went right into Lompoc. Yeah, it was awesome. Wow. Scared shitless. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I don't, I can't, I can't even imagine. What's allowed you to maintain your humanity um, now that you, you're, you're clean and sober for what, a couple decades now? Yeah, and I'm congratulations coming up on 20. Yeah. You know, I'm not 100%, you know, don't want to be because then I might repeat that. I, I know that, I know I got another run in me, but I don't have another recovery. Does that make sense? No. What does that, what does Means, that mean? Like, I know that if I pick up and I start got drinking. You. You're going down, but you're not coming up again. Oh, I'm going to be on the news. I'm going down. Yeah. And I'm never going to come back up. And I don't want to do that because I owe, I owe it to my kids. I owe it to my ex-wife. I owe it to ex-relationships. You know, um, I'm trying to be a good person and not be, um, not be that mean-spirited individual. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes, you know, especially in relationships. Um, and, you know, try, I'm just trying to do better, man. Yeah. Who, are, who have been your role models? Um, you know, role models for me it depends on different aspects of my life. Some people know me as Tiger, because that was my nickname as a kid. I have friends that I'm 61 years old and I have friends that I've known for over 55 years and then still in contact with. Wow. Some people know me as Tom. Some people know me as Tuna because that's what they called me when I was locked up. And some people call me as Tommy. So there's all these different time periods in my life. My dad and my uncles I looked up to as role models. Um, you know, a couple of couple of my friends, my friend Bill Peters that lives here in San Diego, um, and and uh, my fishing partners, you know, Jim Cohen and my buddy Bobby Coba, um, we've been fishing together for a long time. Um, these are guys that I look up to um, and move forward with in life. You know, um, it just—I don't know. I'm trying. I'm kind of hoping maybe somebody looks up to me. Well, it, it definitely sounds like, certainly from the show, um, you know, you, from some of the stories you were telling me before we started recording that, that there are, you know, people of different generations who are really excited to talk to you and yeah. have identified with you on the show. And I'm sure that there are local fishermen who really appreciate the support that, that you kind of help give them during the pandemic. I mean, that was, a, that was a really tough time that no one ever could have anticipated, right? Commercial fishing's hard. 
period. But then when you add in the the fact that restaurants suddenly from one day to the next might stop buying, yeah, and I'm sure that was comforting for you to. I can I can tell you that from my experience, I've never met a commercial fisherman that if you've asked for help, they turned you down, no matter what country. Hmm. Is that because they? They operate in such an uncertain world and, and a dangerous world. I think that it's because they understand that when you're out on the boat, out in the middle of nowhere, you're alone. And you might need help. And if you get on the radio, you don't know where help's going to come from, but it's going to come from somewhere. And, you know, I watched it during the pandemic. People needed help, and they would ask the commercial fishermen, and the fishermen helped them. Where do you get your your perseverance and your, your energy, you're 62. Yeah. And, uh, Shot out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you've got a lot of stuff going on, right? You, you run, you, you, you have a, a business, you, you know, you've got a show that's demanding. Yeah. Um, what, what gets you out of bed in the morning? The flying monkeys playing ping pong <laughs> with the, with the Because they're not sleeping because they wake up before you do? Yeah. I'm usually up by 3.30 in the morning talking to the East Coast. Tomorrow I got to be at the dock at 4 o'clock because I, uh, I have a semi-truck coming in from New Jersey with squid. I buy American squid out of New Jersey because I can't get processed American squid here in California because it all goes to China and process. So I buy my squid from Lund's Fishery, five generations. They've been fishing out of Cape May, New Jersey. They catch the squid. They process the squid. They put it on one of their trucks, and they drive it out here because I can't get American California squid and processed does, And does that count as fresh? Frozen. Fro frozen. It's frozen. Like flash frozen. Yeah, two, it's uh, rings and tentacles. It's already cut up into Got the it. rings and, and the tentacles. So but that, I mean, and again, I can get cheaper, uh, imported a whole lot cheaper, but it's not a better product and it's not supporting the economy, you know? How have you seen, uh, the, the um, global warming, climate change, yeah, it's global happening. warming is, is, is a loaded term, but climate change, how is, how is it impacting, uh, your industry? Well, I mean, we have we have ocean acidification, we have plastics, microplastics, we have all of that stuff. You know, we're we're killing our planet. We are a virus. I had dinner with, uh, <clears throat> I had dinner at a place up in La Jolla, and it was to honor Jane Goodall. Yeah. And this friend of mine has this massive bird aviary on his property in La Jolla. You can actually drive a golf cart through it. It's huge. Mm. Lives right up above Black's Beach. And I'm walking. Near the glider port. Yeah. 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 Right there. Yeah. Yeah. That big house. I think I probably flew by it on the one time I went on a glider with my daughter. Yeah. So I'm walking through this and I knew the dinner was for, for uh, Jane Goodall. And I'm walking through the aviary and there's Jane Goodall, man. She's sitting on the bench, bro. And this is not the same Jane Goodall that I knew when I was growing up on National Geographic and in the jungles and stuff. There's, Jane Goodall, man. She, so I walk over. It's gonna be I, in her eighties. Yeah, and I walk over and I sit down and we, I introduce myself and I, and she says, "Oh, you're cutting a fish today." And I go, "Yeah." And so we get into this whole conversation, bro, about ocean acidification, urban runoff, concrete rivers, 
uh, deforestation. We talk about all this stuff, right? I got no high school diploma. I didn't go to college, but I'm I'm hanging with her because I grew up on the ocean. And you're about to cut a fish that she's going to eat. Yeah, right. And so, and she tells me, she says, "You know we're a virus." I go, "What do you mean?" She goes, "Well." You, the human species is a virus, the human race. We're a virus, and the only way to to uh, conquer the virus is to kill the host, and our host is the planet, and we're killing our planet. And I was, like, blown away. I was like, oh, my God, because you got to remember, I worked on big factory industrialized fishing boats where there was no such thing as sustainability. It just it's wasn't. It's the bottom line. That's all that People yeah, there was right? there was that was not in our vocabulary. That wasn't in our logbook. Sustainability, no. The little green no. question mark. No, it, it wasn't happening. And um, from there on, you know, I started to pay more attention. But look, our ocean is in trouble. And again, it it's it's our food source and everything uh, that goes with it. You know, better living through chemistry. Why are, why do we have? Why do we have so many plastics? I mean, when we were growing up, we didn't have plastic water bottles. We didn't have, you know, we had our lunch. Sometimes our sandwiches were wrapped in newspapers yeah. and, and put in paper, brown paper bags yeah. that was brought home at the end of the day. Right. Wax paper. And remember, sandwiches and wax paper. Yeah, and man. Sort of and now we've got, you know, everything's, everything in our life is disposable. Our cars, you know. Everything is disposable. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I was having a conversation about electric vehicles uh, recently, and yeah. uh, someone said to me, hey, you should buy a Tesla. And I started to do research, and, and, and the whole idea of, I, st I went down a rabbit hole of the batteries and what oh, goes yeah. into the batteries, and the cobalt in batteries yeah. is 90% of it's mined in the Congo yeah. by essentially slave labor okay okay i'm gonna interrupt yeah take that whole concept yeah and put it on a boat because that's the same thing same that's thing. happening same thing yeah and man. then they run it through shell corporations yeah so that it comes out looking clean enough so that a big corporation and uh can multinational corporation can feel good about their their responsible policy that they have yeah and then you have things like the big, the big thing about the ocean right now for fishermen is um, these wind farms. The wind farms, floating wind farms. Yeah, they're anchored to the bottom. Anchored, you know. And all these whales that are beaching themselves in the Gulf of Maine and and along the East Coast, you know, they're being sonar pinged, you know. And that same that sonar ping has the frequency of of a killer whale. The apex predator, so of they the flee. Sea. So they flee, and that stuff's just radiated into their head, and so they beach themselves and stuff because they think they're being surrounded by these apex predators. But these salad shooters, because that's what I call them, they're offshore chicken salad shooters because they're going to just any bird that goes near them is just going to get chopped up, and yet Audubon Society doesn't want to say anything because it's green energy. But it's not because we have to lay these cables 
We have these sleds that are being drug on the bottom of the ocean that leaves a trench that the cable can lay into. We're damaging the ocean habitat. We're damaging the bottom. We're damaging all of this. And then we're going to anchor this giant thing out there, which isn't going to work anyways because the salt water is going to eat it up. And each one's got 760 gallons of lube oil in it. There's a catastrophe happening right there. And, you know, we're just, the ocean is being devastated by us and we're, the plastics and all of that. It's just crazy, man, what's going on. And look, I'm not talking about peace, love, and equal housing. Right. And, you know, sh throw pixie dust in the air and take long hot showers and exchange Christmas cards. That ain't me, bro. I'm just saying, from my point of view, what I see that's what's going on and here in the state of california we're going to want these windmills and we're going to put them just on the other side of the horizon so you can't see them so if the tree falls in the forest and nobody is there did it make any sound because that's what we're looking at you know um our ocean's in trouble we need to pay attention to what's going on we need to support the fishermen that are harvesting in a sustainable manner with minimal bycatch and if there is a bycatch, we need to market that bycatch and have people eat it. And that I believe that, you know, we have to feed the world. There's no doubt about it. We're more and more humans, more and more humans. But the ocean's only going to give us so much. So we need to really start thinking about alternative ways. And you touched base on, on farmed fishing. Yeah. And, you know, not all of it's good, not all of it's bad. Right. Um I'll give you an example. So take a football field, okay? And in that football field, let's make it 8 to 10 foot deep and fill it with water, okay? And at the bottom, we're going to raise shrimp, okay? And above that, the fish are going to be tilapia. Yet all the way around this football field are a bunch of fence posts. And on top of those fence posts is this giant cage with all these dividers. And that's where the pigs live. You got the picture? I do. Only one's being fed. And that's the pig. That's right. Okay. And it filters down all the way down to the little shrimp. And they're all being harvested, and guess where they're being sent to? Yeah, yeah man. Know your source. Ask questions. Why are we riddled with cancer and fat and lethargic and diabetic? And why are, you know, all these things running rampant? Uh, in a hundred years, are we going to be eat? Are we going to not not? I don't know about you, but I won't be around. Um, <laughs> but will it be insect protein? You think the planet can survive any other way? Uh, insect protein is something that can be looked for looked at. Blue Nalu stem rejuvenation of fish mm. it's huge it's right up the road man interesting it's up in tory pines i what, did it did what's it called blue nalu n-a-l-u mm. i did i think that's pronounced right i did it they're gonna be on my show i, I went up there and did you know they some guys ah, you're gonna go interview the petri dish fish and they're putting us out of business i'm like dude they're so far out of going this is not going to be a commodity you know yeah. it's just something that can feed the planet because you know plant-based food i mean i don't there's a place up in oceanside called the plot 
I went to eat there because it's all plant based, and I mean, I mean plant based from the kitchen. Okay. Not this stuff that's being done in a laboratory and then brought in. These guys are doing it. I said, "Oh yeah, give me the biscuits and gravy with a piece of fried chicken." Right? Came out biscuits and gravy made out of plants, totally legit. Ate that chicken, I was like, "What's this made out of?" It's made out of some mushroom, right? Like this is really good. Potato starch was used for the chicken coating mm. and I'm like, bro, this could seriously change a carnivore. It really could. Mm. So there's other food alternatives out there. What does the 62-year-old Tommy tell his 20-year-old self, knowing what you know now? Um, Don't trust that guy. He's a liar, and you're going to go to prison. (laughs) 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 I thought you might go that way. you know, uh, a lot of good and a lot of bad has happened to me in life, and it made me the person that I am today. I, I can tell you this, that, and I don't go to church, but I've been, there's been three times in my life that something has stepped in and intervened. Definitely not of this planet Mm. or whatever you want to call it. A higher power or something else. It's definitely not an angel or something like that. So, you know, no matter what happens to you, um, sometimes you get dealt a really lousy card at this game of life. Um, It's okay to fold and start over. It's okay to be a Polaroid pitcher, take a picture and wait for things to develop without acting on it. Um, Try and keep my emotions in check, which at one time was not easy for me to do, but now it's, I just keep it in check and, and, um, you know, continue to be a better person than I was yesterday and feel confident and okay when I look at the man in the mirror. But like I said, I'm not 100%. What what makes you most proud? You know, you've been very open about the challenges you've faced and some decisions that you made that that uh, had pretty uh, devastating consequences in your life. Yeah. Uh, what are you most proud of? That I'm able to maintain a relationship with not only my daughter, but her mother as well. Um and maintain a relationship um, with people that have apologized or have done me wrong and know it, and it's okay, man. And and you know, you you people people mess up, you know. And do you want to throw away a twenty-year friendship because they messed up, or do you want to, you know, keep an eye on them and and don't keep them at arm's length, but just be aware. So that maybe when you see those signs coming again, that you don't um, neglect those signs. And um, I'm I'm proud of the fact that, like, seriously, bro, the obsession to drink and use is, I swear to God, it's been lifted. How long and, did that take? Um, I turned myself into the San Diego Freedom Ranch up in Campo. And... I was supposed to be there 120 days. Eight months later, eight months. Your choice or their choice? My choice. Okay. 
at the 120 days I walked into the office, you know, um, I'm not going down the hill and you can't make me if you, I'm not ready to leave yet. Whoa, calm down, Tommy. Nobody said you got to go. Any. All right, I'm just making sure, man, because you can't make me leave. And, and I ended up staying up there for eight months. And one day I was laying in my rack and uh, again, this same voice, you know, rocked me by my shoulders and said, hey, you got things to do. Get down the hill. And I walked into the office and said, hey, man, I got to go. Where are you going? I don't know. I'm going to go to my parents' house, but other than that, I don't know what I'm doing, but I got to get down the hill. And I went down the hill, and I saw an ad that help wanted, fish cutter, and I went to work at a place called Catalina Offshore, and Dave Rudy was um, the owner of the company, and I spent 18 years there. And even though Dave and I didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things, you know, he he and I worked through a lot of issues together, and, and we I believe that I was a valuable part in growing that company and, and opening up a retail department and building uh, what I call Collaboration Kitchen, raising money for kids, things like that. And so I look up to Dave, too, because he, he put up with a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, BS, if you will, with me. But, you know, in the end, you know, we were making money and everybody was happy and stuff like that. So, yeah. So I, I have one last question for it you. It can't but, be just one more. No, there's not. There's, <laughs> but, but it's true. Um, um, tell me about the your invention. It's it's a, a bait, right? A certain kind of bait uh, or an additive for bait. Yeah. I remember so we were talking about this. Before. So I was working at this place, Catalina Offshore, and they were. It's one of the biggest sea urchin processors in Southern California, and everything eats a sea urchin, right? Everything, man. You crack a sea urchin open on the bottom, man, here they come. It's like an ice cream truck. Every fish is coming to eat this stuff, right? And I'm looking at this, and I'm like, huh. I took this, the guts and the broken eggs, um, which is the uni, and I figured out a way to dehydrate it and turn it into a talcum powder so that it would dissolve, and I mixed it with some, an all-natural thickening agent and some herring oil. And I brought it up to temperature and blended it all together and then made a, a paste, like a toothpaste out of it. When it cooled down, it became a toothpaste. And it's a scent and attractant that you throw on your lure. So when you rub it on your lure and you throw it out there, as it sinks, it leaves a scent, and as it lures swimming, it leaves a scent behind you. So when you're fishing, you fish from the, you cast at noon and 12.30 and 1 and then one thirty and then 2 o'clock and then 3 o'clock, but you're replying it like every four casts. So you saturate that area with this scent, and the fish come into it, and then you just keep fishing there and ripping their lips off, and it's a great feeling. Because <laughs> you were saying that they almost hit it too hard. They do. I developed another one um, for freshwater use that um, some of the bass fishermen, man, freshwater bass fishermen are weird. Like, they're, they're just weird. Their big thing is like, I got to get a double digit, man. I want that 10-pounder. They get the 10-pounder, and I need a 12. I need right. a 15. I need, you know, and then the next thing you know, they're going after what we call Dottie. It's a big, it was one of the big bass that was caught here in San Diego County. Huge. Huge million dollar fish, right? Everybody wanted it. Um, and we developed this stuff, and I gave it to a couple of young hot sticks 
and they were like tommy you can't you can't put this out there because the fish were so in tune with that scent because of the products that were in it that they were devouring these big lures that had two or three treble hooks and they would get gut hooked in their stomach and you can't get them out and so the fish would die and you don't kill a trophy bass it's all catch and release and i'm sitting there thinking i'm going man i could make a lot of money i'm going to devastate the fishery and this ain't right and so i didn't do it Mm. but i still have the recipe and every once in a while one of those kids who's not so much of a kid anymore uh, has kids of his own that are fishing now. They're like eight years old and stuff. I go, hey, Tommy, can I get a little bit? I'm taking my kid fishing. They go, yeah. So we'll make them a little you know, ounce and a half bottle of it, and they use it. It still works, man. I still got the recipe. Those are patented. Ready to go. Ready to go. Good luck finding it. Good luck trying to figure it out. It's, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's so simple. Mm-hmm. So simple that it's difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Like all good things in life. Yeah, like it's like baking a brownie in a Susie homemaker oven. <laughs> the light bulb goes on. <laughs> <laughs> what have we uh what have we not touched on that that maybe is not included in your show and in your in some of your your public persona uh, that's out there that you that you'd like to to share with our listeners you know that the the thing that i work with kids and uh you know there's a lot of good kids out there man that are just they just got dealt a lousy hand of cards at this game of life man and they're good kids you know um they really don't have anybody that they could talk to because, like I said earlier, you know, um, there is no dad or dad's incarcerated or he's gone off on business all the time and mom's working or she, mom's not working. And, you know, maybe mom's indulging in mother's little helper, you know, from back in the day of the Rolling Stones and maybe mom's drinking a little bit. And it's not like when we were younger, we were, you know, we had the latchkey kids, you know, Um these are good kids, man. They just got dealt a, a lousy hand. And so for those kids out there and for anybody out there, look, it's okay to ask for help. It really is. It's okay. There's people out there that want help, need help, but don't know how to ask for help. It's okay to ask for help. Reach out because it, it, it's it's what... It's hard to explain when somebody comes up to you and asks you for help. Hey, I need help. I'm drinking or I need help with this or I need help with that. And you do it. You do it. I do it because I know in order to keep what I have, I have to give it away is what I've learned in the rooms. Um, And asking for help is not a cop-out or showing signs of weakness. It's just that you want somebody to be there with you for that moment because you don't want to go alone because you've been alone up until that point you've been alone that whole time until you're able to ask for help i was sitting downtown in the gas lamp this was before the pandemic things were still good for me and i'm sitting on on the outside it's at night we're at one of the restaurants there on fifth avenue sitting outside and i'm watching this guy come down 
and he's walking and I and as he's getting closer and closer I can see he's starting to tear up and his wife is tearing up and I'm thinking wow man I wonder what happened why they're getting sad and everything and as they got closer and closer I see him and he starts to smile and I'm looking and I don't recognize this guy at all because when I first met him he was hitting a crack pipe mm. behind a gas station behind a dumpster in his boxer shorts and I grabbed this dude literally kidnapped him threw him in my truck and drove him to a rehab center in the mountains and I worked with him for about six months until he was coherent enough to get into the program and move on by himself and I hadn't seen him since and he'd been clean and sober for several years and that was his wife that came down and they were going to a show. They were going to a show downtown. And we broke down and cried. And he says, you don't remember me? And I said, no, you don't. And he says, you grabbed me out from behind a trash can. And I was hitting a crack pipe. And I looked at him. I went, oh, my God, that is you. And his wife was crying. And she was like, thank you so much. And it's like, no, nah, he, he saved me. I didn't save him. He saved me because I was able to do what we were supposed to do for whatever reason. I don't know if that makes sense, but. It does. I think it's it's that's a real poignant uh, reminder too. And you know, in my world, we work with with young people, and, yeah. And um, especially especially coming out of the pandemic, just the level of mental health concerns and despair and kind of hopelessness among kids is yeah. is it seems to be at all time at an all time high. And just a reminder that there's there's always a chance and, and there's always hope. And if you do allow someone to help you and reach out and ask and, you know, and th th I think also using you as inspiration um, that, you know, we all need to be a little bit less selfish uh, in everything we do. Yeah. And be grateful for, for what we have and when things are good and then um, pass it on to someone else. Pay it forward. Pay it forward. Pass it on. Yeah. You just don't know. You don't know. Yeah. You don't know what the other person's going through. And, and if you can help just a little yeah. bit, man, you're never going to know where help comes from. Yeah. It, you really aren't. Yeah. And m for every time that someone comes back and sees you on the street and gives you a hug, there's going to be 10 times where you never hear from that person again. But that's okay. I'm getting transferred. From the West Coast. We got time? Yeah, we're good. <clears throat> I'm getting transferred from the West Coast to the East Coast for an incident uh, that was pretty gnarly. I had to take care of some business because politics at that time said you need to do this. And so it, sh it was handled. On and the inside. On the inside. On the inside. So I'm in a holding cell at FCI Phoenix, right? I'm going to Sandstone, Minnesota in the dead of winter. I don't want to go. Man, I'm a long-haired white boy from the west coast of San Diego. I am not wanting to go to Minnesota. Sandstone, Minnesota. Anyways, I'm sitting in this room, and in this room was, there was 60 triple rack bunk beds. And down at the end, each, each one was lined up. And down at the end of the lines was... The heads, the toilets, yeah. right? And it was chow, and I didn't want to go to chow. So when I had first gotten into that room, at that time I was 280 pounds. I had no fat. 
I was just all yoked up, ready to go. Hitting the gym every day. That's all you had to do. Yeah. I got no ink. I got no tats to this day. I'm I'm not. I am ink free. And I walked all the way over into the far corner, bottom bunk, and told this dude, that's my bunk, get out. And he just rolled out of the bunk. And I was like, all right, cool. I'm in the corner, up against the corner, my back in the corner. I have peripheral. I got the view of the whole room, right? I'm good. My partner comes in. He jumps up on the top bunk. Got another homeboy. Grabs a bunk across from me. So we're safe. We got this corner. Cool. They go to chow. They go, hey, Tuna, you're going to chow. No, I'm not going to chow. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm laying there in my bunk, and my back is against the wall. My arms are crossed. My feet are up on my bunk, and I'm, my eyes are closed, and I'm slipping in and out because you don't really sleep. Right. But you, I'm slipping in and out. And all of a sudden, I feel these hands come down those hands come down and shake me right and says nobody deserves to die in prison and i wake up and i look and down the hallway there's this old timer coming out now you got to picture this we're locked up he's coming out of the bathroom stall with his pants down around his ankles clutching his heart and down he goes and i just like I ain't getting any, anywhere near this. I go to close my eyes, and those hands come down and grab me and shake me. And I hear it again. No one deserves to die in prison. And I open my eyes, and there's no one there. And I get up, and I go down there, and I start CPR on this guy. So now you got to picture this. I'm on top of this guy. He's got his pants down around his ankles. I'm in prison. I'm doing the chest pumps. I'm giving him CPR. And this guy comes in in a suit. And I look at him and I said some very explicit words and said, I need some help. He gets on the radio and says, Warden Cohane to Health Services. And I'm thinking to myself, great. I just called the warden. <laughs> Name it. Right. Right? So all these guards start coming. I'm going to work on this guy. The guards don't know what's happening. All they know is that the warden needed health services and hit the body alarm. So all these guards started coming. They see me on top of this guy with his pants down around his ankles, and I'm doing CPR. They boot me off of him and just work me over, Right? Broke my teeth, busted my jaw. I mean, I was a wreck, man. I was a wreck. They dragged me off. So it was like a week later, the lieutenant and the captain come, and they want me to sign a piece of paper. Of, of and I was in the federal system, so it's not the state system. Time is time. Federal is easier, it's just, but time's, it's time. You know, time is time. So as I say, we need you to sign this paperwork that says that you were um, excessively abused by the guards during his accusation. I said, I fell down the stairs. He says, there were no downstairs. I said, then I fell up the stairs. He says, you were on the main floor. I said, well, I tripped over my shoelace. He said, you were in transit. You had slippers on. I'm like, look, dude, I fell. So I didn't say anything. They came back the next week, wanted me to sign these papers. I'm like, look, I'm not signing anything. I fell down. I don't know what you're talking about. I fell down, right? I'm in the hole for a month. Finally, I get a chance to see the warden. They come get me. Warden wants to see you. I'm like, great. 
go in there. This is the guy that I called all these right. names to because I wasn't getting any help. He says, uh, it's very commendable what you did, Mr. Gomes. And he has my record in front of him. And I'm looking at that going, oh, man, this is not good. He says, uh, do you understand who the individual was that you saved? And I said, oh, good, he survived. I said, that's good. And he's like, huh. He looks at me, he goes, do you mean that? I go, well, yeah, man. I, you know, guy dies in prison. That's not right. He says, there's a state senator who is in for tax evasion. And I'm like, wow. Well, good. I'm glad he survived. He goes, where do you want to go? I said, excuse me? He goes, where do you want to go? So me being the smart butt that I am, I said, uh, I want to go home. That's what I want to do. He goes, I can't send you home. And I said, I know you can't. But I'll tell you what. Send me west of the Rockies, anywhere west of the Rockies. I don't want to go on the other side of the Rockies because I'll never get back to see my kid, my family, or anything. And so uh, I was instead of going to Sandstone, Minnesota, man, I got to stay west of the Rockies, which was cool. And then when I hit the yard that I ended up at, Word had already traveled because that's just how it is on the inside. You know, word travels quick. And there were some guys there that I knew from Lompoc. They were like, bro, I can't believe you you stepped in it and you came out like a rose. I go, man, I was almost in Sandstone, Minnesota. Well, yeah, just, so that was, you know. Wow. that that what That's not on the show. That's not. Uh, but that's, uh, I guess the moral of that is to pay attention to the hands when they shake you, right? Yeah, yeah. There's been a couple of times, yeah. you know, but, um, wow. you know, life goes on every day. I mean, it just, you know, you never know what the individual in front of you is going through. So try and have a little bit of compassion, you know, just a little bit, man, especially in today's world. We're losing yeah. that. Yeah. I, I talked, you know, I was just in a staff meeting. We were talking about that even in regards to students, right? I mean, students are, you know, the, the temptation, it, you know, teaching's a difficult profession it can be challenging yeah. you're faced with with just all of life's challenges all you know concentrated in the classroom and yeah. um uh it can the temptation can be to to try to to ignore ignore some of the humanity in that room uh it's it's sometimes difficult to maintain a focus on students and their best interests and you know extending grace to kids but man i i was just dealing with a situation where we were figuring out a student why a student had be, hadn't been at school and they told us that they only go to school one day a week because there's multiple kids in the home and the parents only have gas and time to drive one kid every two days to their yeah. various campuses Wow. So that a kid who, you know, you look at their record on paper and you go, ah, oh, you know, you missed 60% of your school days. Yeah. Kids 12, 13 years old. And they really have very little control over that. That's a factor beyond their control. That's an adult uh, situation and it's unfortunate. And, you know, we, as teachers and educators, we might not really be thinking that folks are at that le level of desperation, right? Where they have to choose between driving this kid to school or that kid to school on a, do I have enough gas and time to get to work? And so just a reminder, right. To yeah. extend people grace. Um, and as you say, I like that image of the Polaroid, right? Take, yeah, take the Polaroid, develop. let it develop. 
that's another thing. You know, we're so. You see, you see, especially in with kids, you see, it's a, a schoolyard scuffle. You know, instead of somebody trying to break it up, they break out the phones. Right. You know. In fact, the majority of the scuffles that we have are planned, so they're planned so that other kids get ready to film it. Yeah. Because they've got people live streaming, they're live streaming and people are watching. Yeah, they don't know the repercussions of that because once it's out there, it's out there for good. Yeah, that's a bell you can't unring. Yeah, yeah. and you know, grown. I mean, you see memes on social media and stuff all the time. You know, this is how this was our group chat. You know, and there's a bunch of bicycles out in front of little yeah. Johnny's house. You know, that's how you knew where all your friends were. Yeah. Nowadays, it's not like that. Man. I, I was telling somebody that. In my neighborhood growing up, we knew when to be home because the fire department down the street, every night at 7.05 p.m., they tested their whistle, their siren at the firehouse. Yeah. And that was the thing. You need to be home by the time that whistle stopped. So it would take 30 seconds to go, oh. And yeah. By the time it ended, I better be home. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, we've, I've got other situation to deal with. Yeah, you couldn't home. pick out the cell phone and call no, mom. No, 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 no. There was none of that. Yeah. No. So you get, just got home. But you know what, bro? It wasn't that bad of a... It wasn't that bad. It's not bad. No, it really wasn't. It was simple. Yeah. It was simple. It was yeah. It was clear on certain nothing things. nothing wrong with Leave it to Beaver, Dennis yep. the Menace, yep. and all of that yeah, stuff, yeah. you know? We're out in nature and tra- figuring out, solving some of our own problems. Right? I think today, today in today's society, it's... We want it, and I mean all of us. We want it now. We want it fast. We want it quick. We want it now. You know, our food is fast. Everything is fast. Our cars are fast. You know, internet is fast. You know, somebody's internet's slow. They freak out. You know, and and uh, we need to just take it easy. And you need we need more tackle boxes and less Xboxes in our life, man. We need to go fishing. That's a good T-shirt the right there. Yeah, That's, you need to say that on the, on your show the next time. <laughs> <laughs> we just need to take it easy a little bit, you know. Yeah. And, and again, when it comes to these kids, you know, um, at at sixty one, I'm over the middle age. Oh, I, did I give you an extra year? Yeah, when I said sixty two. I'm, I'm, I'm projecting. I'm projecting. Yeah. I'm over the middle age, so now I'm just on, barely, and and now I'm seeing things like I look at the old timers. You know, I look at these old men, and the, not the old fishermen that I've grown up knowing and respecting, but I look at these old men, and and uh, you wonder, you know, um, what he went through. Yeah, you know, these guys are in their nineties. Yeah. There was a there was a thing on um, that came up. You know the it was a comedian who was who was touching making a point you know it was making a point and in today today's world with the topics that are going on and and all of that you know the the guys that jumped out of airplanes and stormed normandy they weren't heroes and the guys in vietnam that were hiding in the jungles they weren't heroes and you know those that went to fight in afghanistan for democracy they weren't heroes and everything but you know the guy who can't figure out what bathroom to go into, he's a hero nowadays? Seriously? And that's where we're coming, man. And it's like, but you know what I mean? And you can't say anything because then uh, you're going to be painted a bad person. You know? 
know, so you just got to keep your mouth shut about certain things. But it's true, you know. We, you can't have an opinion anymore. You can't. You just got to be cool. But when it comes to these kids, you know, you, sometimes you got to, instead of talking down to them from standing over them, right. get down on your knee a little bit or sit on a chair with them, you know, and let them know everything's going to be okay. Because it's not. These are not the days of when we grew up. And to sit there and tell these kids that these are your good old days, some of these kids don't want to hear that because they're not good days for right. these kids. Right. And you can help them. And it's tough for educators and those in your industry yeah. because you really don't know what's going on at home. You know, we. Are, it, I remember as a kid just looking forward to vacation so much right and or i grew up on the east coast so we'd have snow days it would be snowing if it started snowing too early you knew they'd plow but if the snow started coming down around 11 12 1 2 in the morning you might get a snow day the next day yeah but we have we face challenges with the opposite with students where they don't want to go away for vacation because they're not going home to much yeah and so school is more predictable it has routine and, and safety and those Ooh, sorts of things. Yeah. Like that's a, that's an interesting reflection too. Yeah. I couldn't wait. I mean, we used to love snow days and then they'd, we'd hit our limit. You know, we'd have a bad year with a couple blizzards and then you'd have to go extra days in June. So yeah. to make up, but um, I want to uh, give you one last thing to think about. Yeah. And you can't use the tool, the tackle box. Yes. <laughs> Xbox. No, but I'm going to give it. So San Diego five freeway, Tommy Gomes gets a chance to have a billboard on the freeway. Yeah. You can design a billboard. Remember, I know you're not a man, a few words. So someone's driving 65 miles an hour. They got about three seconds to read it. And this is Tommy Gomes uh, uh philosophy of life on the billboard. What does it say? Do the right thing. That's it. Do the right thing. You know what's right. You know what's wrong. Your soul will tell you when it's wrong. Your mind will tell you when it's wrong. Your heart will tell you when it's wrong. Um, your heart will never play tricks on you. Your mind will. Hmm. And your soul is your soul, right. whether it's light or dark. Hmm. You know, you can have a dark soul and make it light again. You know, I'm not proud of a lot of things that I've done in my life. And I've done a lot of good things in my life, but I reflect on the bad things more than the good things. Mm. And I have friends, like I said earlier, that I've had for 50, 55 years, and I don't mean one or two, a lot, Yeah, that keep me level. Mm. And that'll go, dude, have you ever really thought about what you've been through in your life? I go, yeah, once in a while I do, and it's okay. That's a great place to to wrap. I really appreciate your, do the your right time. Thing. Do the right thing. Just do the right Tommy thing. Tommy Gomes, do the right thing. Uh, where do people find you on social media? Do you know your... Uh, your Not in the bars. <laughs> <laughs> do you know your Instagram handle offhand? Or are we going to link that in the show notes? <clears throat> yeah, I got uh, Tommy the Fishmonger on Instagram. You can find me, Tommy Gomes, on Facebook. Tommy the Fishmonger on Facebook. Tunaville Market and Groceries. Um Follow the TV show, The Fishmonger, on the Outdoor Channel, World Fishing Network, Sportsman's Channel, Outdoor Channel, United Airlines. Um, 
super cool stuff going on. We do dinner events all throughout the city. We raise money for kids. Um, and, um, yeah, come down to the market and see me and hang out and grab a bite to eat. We got salads and sausages that we make from fish and all kinds of cool things, man. Life's a, what is it, Joe Dirt said, life's a garden, dig it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great place to end. And we're going to have to get you uh, 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 version 2.0 of this podcast. We're going to need to get you in, in front of some of our students as well uh, as in, I would uh, love to that. speak with them. So we'll, yeah. we'll be in touch. Thank you so much, uh, Tommy, for hanging out. And uh, I wish you all the best in your future endeavors. Thanks, man. Hope right. to be yeah. back. Thank you for listening to the Superintendent's Hangout. You can follow me on Twitter at DVS1970. Please be sure to share this show with friends and family on social media and in the real world. Thank you to Brad Bacayal for editing and production assistance and to Tina Royster for scheduling and logistics. Thanks for hanging out and have a great day.